Today's episode of Hidden Forces is made possible by listeners like you. For more information about this week's episode or for easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io. Select the episode that you're interested in and click on the premium extras where you can then sign up to one of our premium content tiers. And remember, if you listen to the show on your Apple podcast app, you can give us a review. Each review helps more people find the show and join our amazing community. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. In March of 1989, CERN scientist Tim Berners-Lee wrote a proposal to develop a distributed information system for the laboratory. Vague but exciting was the comment that his supervisor, Mike Sindahl, wrote on the cover, and with those words gave the green light to what would become the information revolution. Before the end of 1990, Berners-Lee would define the web's basic concepts, the URL, HTTP, and HTML, writing the first browser and server software. For the next two years, the web would remain largely inaccessible all but the most niche academics and hypertext enthusiasts. There was a definite element of not wanting to make it easier, of actually wanting to keep the riffraff out, recalled Mark Andreessen, founder of Netscape. His own big idea in the winter of 1992 was to let the riffraff in. That opening came in the form of the Mosaic browser, which brought with it two key implementations, the support for images and more importantly, compatibility with Microsoft Windows, which at the time accounted for more than 80% of the world's operating systems. Shortly after Mosaic launched in January of 1993, the number of websites in existence could be measured in the hundreds. By the end of 1994, that number had surpassed tens of thousands, and Mosaic was adding as many as 600,000 new users every month. Berners-Lee may have been responsible for creating the web, but it was Mark Andreessen and his team of misfits and geeks at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, surrounded by empty pizza boxes and soda cans that took the web mainstream. Andreessen and his team eventually left Mosaic behind to found Netscape, taking it public in August of 1995, kicking off a five-year mania of creative energy and enthusiasm that would see the creation of the first search engines, e-commerce platforms, and web blogs. More than 17 million new websites created before the end of the 20th century. In five short years, the internet craze, kicked off by the commercialization of the browser, culminated in the bursting of the most spectacular stock market bubble seen since 1929. That story, one predicated on a revolutionary technology and enabled by the dreams, ambitions, and avarice of a generation unrestrained by the prudence of their parents and untouched by the failures of the past, is a history that, until this day, has remained largely untold. This week on Hidden Forces, Brian McCullough, search engines, web portals, and the history of the information revolution.
Brian McCullough, welcome to Hidden Forces. Thank you, Dimitri, for having me on. I'm so excited to have you on, man. Your book is awesome. Your podcast is awesome. I didn't tell you this. We were talking for a bunch of time before this started, but I actually came across your podcast. Either it was because I had Jimmy Sony on the show, uh-huh, yeah. and I heard your excellent interview with him and Rob Goodman. Your podcast also for audiences is called The Internet History Podcast. This is the book, How the Internet Happened, from Netscape to the iPhone. It's a great book, and I'll catch up the audience on how this whole thing works, and you'll tell them as well. But it was probably the Jimmy Sony interview, but the point is we redid the music for this show, and there's this song, one of Madonna's many songs that I love where it's like there's like voice, and then the beat hits on the voice. Ray Light. I, no, I don't know no, what it okay. was. I can't remember. But your podcast really is special, the Internet History Podcast, because it has the sounds of dial-up. And then it comes in with the beat of the music. And I remember I sent it to, among many pieces of audio that I sent to my the artist that did the music for this show, and I said, you know, I really love how this guy incorporates these authentic sounds that are related and relevant to the podcast and then brings in this music. And I just, I just love it. It's just beautiful. It was important to me to do the dial-up sound, which even though it's a long intro, which they always tell you not to do, it's like a minute and a half intro instead of getting right to the content. But yeah, I wouldn't lose it. It's fantastic. I listen to it every single time. I didn't fast forward it. So I guess the first question I have for you is, did you start the Internet History Podcast, what was it, 2015? 2014. Did you start it with an inkling in mind that you would write a book or an inkling in mind that it would be anything more than just a few episodes? I started the book first. So I've done three companies in my life. Like any startup idea, it was just like, you know, no one's done this book before. Someone's going to do it. Why not me? So, uh, you know, I've never written it. I'm not a journalist. I'm not a historian or whatever. But I do know the story because I, you know, it's been my whole career has been in the Internet. So I start to do the research. I start to do the interviews because, again, I've been in the industry for 20 years. I know some people. So I get these great interviews with those Netscape guys. And I'm like, why am I going to sit on this? And they're going to have two quotes in the book four years from now. Right. And I'm a web guy. I'm used to when I have an idea, I can put it up there and get immediate feedback and know what people think about it. So I just said, I was a fan of podcasts. I'll put these up as podcasts. And I had a thousand listeners the first week. I thought it was just going to be a nostalgia thing for guys that remember the 90s, if you're old enough. But based on the interaction with the audience, I'd say I always tell people like 70% of the audience, I feel like are kids entering tech today because there hasn't been this before. So if you're 26 and you're entering tech, you don't remember AOL. You don't remember the sound of a dial-up. You're born 1992 if you're 26, right? I don't. I'm not that good at math. 1991, 1992. I'm not that good at math, man. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the year 2000 now. If you were born in 2000, I think you're 17, 18 right now. Yeah. Right. Well, that's easy, man. <laughs> that's t- <laughs> anyway, we're getting some insight into your weird brain. Yeah. Brian. So I'm good at math when it comes to business, but not dates and names. The podcast it fed each other. You know, the podcast took off, and I sort of forgot about the book certain people that I interviewed for the podcast nudged me back to making it a book. But then when I put something up, if I get something wrong, the audience corrects me. You know, I haven't talked to anybody from this company. I asked the audience, they make those connections. So it's been great like to write the book sort of in the open with the audience, with the listeners, with the readership following along with you. It's like an open beta. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's like Google was in beta for how long? They had that little logo. Right, right, right. That was for years. Did yeah. they have that? I think two or three years, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, So how did you decide, we shared this also before the podcast that we've both have read. Of course you have, but I've also read John Naughton's book mm-hmm. and I want to have him on the program. I've been in touch with John. John wrote a brief, among other books, A Brief History of the Future, which is a mm-hmm. history of the internet. And there is a distinction between the internet and the web. Right. And the real, I would say, everyone should read, if you want the full history of the internet, going back to ARPANET and all that stuff, it's called Where the Wizards Stay Up Late. And it goes back and tells very well the scientific story, the invention of email, how it was a government program, and then how it you know, got released and stuff like that. But my thesis was, what's been more transformative to daily life than the internet? No one's told the story of the internet happening to us, coming into pervading our lives. Companies like AOL, like Napster, like Google, like Facebook. There's been books about all these companies, all these people, but one single volume, here's how it happened, A to B to C. I kept waiting for someone to do it, and here it is. (laughs) I did it. And so much of that was informed by Tim Berners-Lee, HTTP, and the browser. Well, so the point I make in the book is that he walks this back now in retrospect, but the World Wide Web, he definitely wanted it to be for academics. Like, he would still say, oh, I want anyone to use it, and that's why he opened up the project to, like, here, code up a better browser. He wrote the first web browser. But he didn't, I honestly believe, he again, in retrospect, will claim otherwise, that it would ever have cat videos or your grandma on it. It wasn't meant for that. One of the reasons why the Mosaic browser took off is it was the first browser to allow inline images. I don't know if you're old enough to remember that like if you had to play a sound file even as late as the late 90s, you had to have a real audio player that popped up. Like it didn't play in the browser. So pictures, if you wanted a picture, it would pop up in a separate program or whatever. I'm old enough to remember that. I, yeah, I do remember yeah. the audio. I don't remember the pictures popping right. up. Right. So the thing that made Mosaic take off was Andreessen's like, we need pictures. This needs to look sexy. This can be sexy. Andreessen is the founder of Netscape Mosaic, right, which yeah. was the team at mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. at Champaign. Is it pronounced Champaign? Yeah. It's, In Illinois. It's the National Center for Supercomputer something something. NCI. I can't remember now. It's been so long since I wrote that. But yeah, so essentially Tim Berners-Lee says, here's the web. I want people to do amazing things with it. And the main tool that we need is a web browser. Here's how you do HTML, but the consumption is a web browser. So these kids at the University of Illinois in the basement, Mark Andreessen, the ringleader of these kids, do a better web browser, a sexier web browser that's easier for people to use and, crucially, for Windows users. How did that name come about? Who started using the term browser to talk about what it was? Berners-Lee. Berners-Lee. Yeah, yeah. So it's interesting also, another point I want to drive home, because you don't write about it in the book, but it's in your podcast about porn on the internet, Mm, mm -hmm. which I hope we will get to in our overtime segment. But this point you made about the images in Mosaic, there's another example, and I can't remember now where it is, but where similarly, and it might have been with music, Mm. it might have been with Napster, but it was with the chat rooms. I just remember that that was just like liquid hydrogen, you know, on a fire. And the same thing with images. We're hardwired for images. We're hardwired to communicate, to be social. And so when technology service those needs, that's, I think, where you find the most rapid adoption. This got cut out of the book, but I made a point once that no one thought until the web took off that computers 
were good as communication devices. It turns out that's what they're best at. Mm. Everyone thought that computers will think for you, they'll store data, they'll record data or whatever, but it's not a tool. A telephone's all you need or, you know. But in every case, roughly this book covers around 15 years, in each iteration of the web and the internet, the thing that hits first, the killer app is people talking to each other. AOL with the chat rooms. You can make the argument that Napster had a huge social element because you're sharing your music collection yeah. with other people. Why did, when mobile comes around, all these companies that explode are chat apps, essentially, you know, WhatsApp and Instagram. And if VR ever goes mainstream, I would put really good odds that the app or company that'll take off first will be the best at allowing people to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Well, the same thing with online gaming. Right. What's made that really blow up has been people talking sure. to each other. Right, exactly. Like Twitch and you're constantly talking, all that stuff. So I feel like I've been having less structured conversations lately on the podcast, but because of the importance of the subject and the lack of available information about it, I feel like it's worth really trying to do our best. Well, to, guide to, me because I can ramble. Through, so, yes. Point <laughs> to go direction. through this timeline. So you start the book with Mosaic and Mark Andreessen's team at uh, in Illinois. In Illinois. Then you move to Netscape, right. which is the company that he created after he left Mosaic because the university was stifling him. The bureaucracy right. was kind of laying down, which I think fascinating story. I wonder how common that was in your early research. How did you decide to pick on that beginning? It seems pretty obvious, but I'm curious. And then let's just move forward from there. This is where it comes from. I lived it. I remember the Netscape IPO happening. like, And what I remember also, and I make this point, is that, first of all, Netscape is truly the first dot-com, truly the first internet company. But this world that we live in where entrepreneurs are rock stars now. And nerds are rock stars. Right. It used to be that nerds were not rock that stars. That did not exist before the mid-90s. That did not exist before the dot-com era. So the reason I remember, you know, I was a junior in high school at the time is because, like, it was this weird sort of thing that bubbled up in the news that was like, wait a minute, what... Even that, like, in the 80s, you didn't get new companies every day. You know what I mean? Like, I know that this is, again, how, sort of how the Internet has changed the world. But so this idea of entrepreneurialism, of a company being new and making people rich, like, I remember that as, like, turning people's heads. And so now, subsequently, everyone says that Silicon Valley was dead before the Netscape IPO, and all of a sudden the gold rush started because of that. And... You have a Wall Street background, right? Like the uh, kind of a little bit, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you know, guys on Wall Street will tell you that, like, yeah, the five years of insanity that was the dot com era started with that IPO, out of the gate, zero to sixty, and it didn't stop for five years. Well, you got this great quote that uh, I love you for this one. As August 9th also happened to be the day that Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead died, and a joke made the rounds on Wall Street. What were Jerry Garcia's last words? Answer, Netscape opened at what? Right. <laughs> I love that. Because that's the other thing that <laughs> didn't happen before. Netscape was 18 months old, had no profits, barely any revenue, and all of a sudden it's worth two point something billion dollars. <laughs> that didn't happen until Netscape. That's great. And that's such an important part of this story. So let's actually highlight those three things. The technology, the entrepreneurialism, and Wall Street. Right. Right? Because Wall Street has... And that always happens, right? And eventually, by the end of the 90s, Wall Street was probably a bigger part of the story than anything else, right? right yeah. And all the retail investors who were betting and giving companies like Pets.com, the classic example, but you have so many other ones in the book. And we'll get to that. But you went with Mosaic, you went with Netscape. Netscape really was 
for its time a step up in terms of browser experiences. I mean, it was like yes. something noticeably different, I think in a way that's similar to how Google was different. When mm -hmm, Google mm -hmm. came along, the experience of using a search engine, all of a sudden, I feel like it was like, this oh, is what a oh, search this engine, this is, this is it. Yeah, yeah, this, this actually works. works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and also it's more fundamental than that because when Netscape releases its beta, I think there's still maybe 20 million people on the whole web, in the whole world. So it's a chicken and an egg thing where most people saw the web for the first time through Mosaic first, then a Netscape web browser. And so they see something cool, and then that makes them want to see more. So as more people come on the web because of Netscape, Netscape becomes this rocket ship company that as people on the web go from 20 million to 100 million, which happens you know, roughly over the course of 1995, everybody's using the Netscape browser. So all of a sudden, Netscape goes and has an install base of 100 million browsers. So it sort of like builds the web going mainstream, and it feeds off it kind of at the exact same time. I'm curious how the ISPs and the internet providers got involved in this point in time and who these early adopters were that, and how are they getting on? Because the way that I remember really beginning to use the internet was through AOL. Yeah, and we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll get into that. But there's also this other great storyline that's running in parallel and then converges. Mm -hmm. There are a number, and it's the beast of Redmond. It's yeah, Microsoft, yeah. it's Bill Gates. It's this behemoth monopoly software company that has defeated Apple. Apple is, you know, it's dying in, at this time. It defeated everybody. There were huge companies. No one remembers Corel and like all of these huge multi-billion dollar companies, Novell, that they slew. When the Netscape IPO happens, it's impossible to appreciate today how there was Microsoft and nobody else. Like they basically had cleared the field of their competitors and they just ruled the tech. It was 96, 95. 95, 95 was the IPO. The yeah, IPO. Yeah. And Microsoft had its designs on the internet. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. the importance between yeah. the, the internet and the web. Yeah. And for them, it was the information superhighway. That was the term. Catch us up on what the monopoly players, what the big corporates like Microsoft, what their designs were for the internet, how they saw their place in that ecosystem, and how Netscape's appearance yeah. sort of disrupted those plans and then began this decades-long yeah, yeah. period of Microsoft having to try to put out flames or address or whatever and throw... In a way, it's the classic innovator's dilemma. They get disrupted from below, but this is pedantic. But we got to be careful with terms because they didn't have designs on the internet because Bill Gates didn't think the internet was mainstream. They believed there would be a networked future coming. They figured it would come around the year 2000, maybe 2001, 2002, when broadband, they had all the projections and things like that. They knew when the technology was coming. They figured it was going to come through your cable, probably be delivered through your TV. This information superhighway they really thought was going to be delivered in the living room via smart TVs. Mm -hmm. What they didn't anticipate, because Bill Gates knew what the internet was. Paul Allen died last night. Mm -hmm. When they were working on early parts of Microsoft, they were in different parts of the country. They were sending the files back together on the internet. So he knew what it was, but he thought it was for nerds. What he didn't anticipate is that the internet was good enough that they didn't have to wait for broadband to come. And so Netscape becoming this company that's taking off that has this blockbuster IPO that suddenly has 30, then 100 million installed base users and things like that, opens his eyes to like, oh, okay, we're not going to wait. This is now. And the other reason he wanted to wait is if they had delivered it their way, it would have been proprietary 
and it would be safe for consumers. It would be, you know, sanded, all the rough edges sanded down, but also they'd be able to take a cut of everything. So the fact that the internet and the web came along as an open standard was antithetical to obviously everything that Gates believed in. Also, Windows 95, you know, we right. didn't, I mean, they had 100%. just started to really become successful and dominate the market right. with software. Right. And I want to ask you about the role of Windows 95 and the control of the operating system mm -hmm. in terms of how they tried to take control of this early nascent web with Internet Explorer and other efforts. But I want to take a quote from your book. It's a little long, but it relates to Bill Gates because, like I said, he comes in and out of this of your book. I didn't anticipate writing so much about Microsoft because, again, most of my work has been in the 2000s. Microsoft has been in a decade in the wilderness. Everything that everyone was doing, especially in the 90s, was either against Microsoft or anticipating what they were going to do. It was amazing. What did Mark Andreessen say in a news article or somewhere? He took a, he took a jab at... Uh, that we're going to turn Microsoft into a set of poorly debugged device drivers. Windows, <laughs> Windows into it, yeah. How, and it, there, there's a sense, and I love, there's another great quote. I don't have it here, but it's of Steve Ballmer. They gave somebody the position of like chief internet person mm -hmm, at Microsoft, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Ballmer like burst into his office. J. He's like, what, yeah. yeah, he's like, what is this internet shit he's yeah, like i've yeah, got my yeah. clients asking me yeah. what's that what was that what was that what was the culture like at microsoft between bill and uh, and it's, steve and everything was it it's 100 percent generational though because gates is famously he was born in 55 same year as steve jobs so in the early 90s the kids the people at microsoft in their late 20s early 30s the ben slivkas he's in the book just 10 years younger than what Bill Gates is and what Steve Ballmer is. And so these assumptions, we all suffer from this, especially as we get older, but like this is the way the world is and you can't see it. You always got to keep those kids around to Absolutely. let you know. And the Jay Allards tell Bill Gates, listen, this is real. We got to get on it. When did Bill send this memo that I'm going to quote now? The one um, that he said about Netscape uh, being a competitor? So it would have been late 94, early 95. So he sent out this memo and then I want you to give us context for it. This is Bill Gates now sending this memo out to all his Microsoft staff. Mm -hmm. I have gone through several stages of increasing my views on its importance. Now I assign the internet the highest level of importance. In this memo, I want to make clear that our focus on the internet is crucial to every part of our business. The internet is the most important single development to come along since the IBM PC was introduced in 1981. A new competitor born on the internet, in quotes, is Netscape. Their browser is dominant with 70% usage share, allowing them to determine which network extensions will catch on. They are pursuing a multi-platform strategy. We have to match and beat their offerings. I love this quote because it shows, first of all, just how seriously Bill took this, how incredibly competitive he was, and his mindset around market share and dominance. There was a series of efforts of people within Microsoft who I've talked to on the Internet History Podcast, Ben Slivka, Brad Silverberg, Jay Allard, that they're trying to convince Bill what I, what I said before, that we can't wait, Bill, for this information superhighway that we're going to brand and own and everything. This is happening now. We need to get serious about this now. Multiple times they would have retreats where they would have him browse the web and things like this. So it was a series of trying to talk him into it. And multiple people from Microsoft have said to me, they're like, you know, when he finally got it, it's great that he got it and went whole hog on it. But it was a period of like 12 to 18 months of them trying to convince him. And again, because they're at their peak. So again, it's the innovator's dilemma thing. Bill Gates wants to sit back and be like, hey, we won. 
right? So he doesn't <laughs> want to be told, by the way, there's this whole new battle coming and we got to be ready for it. Isn't there something similar? And I want to get us to track here, but I feel like that happened with music, mm-hmm. mobile music for Bill. And it also happened with the mobile carrier. I just, I just did a phone. piece this week because Google Plus just died about the time period when all of a sudden everyone in Google has to drop what they're doing. Every product has to be social. Social has to be a part of Gmail, of YouTube, of everything, because there was a guy that wrote a great tweet thread about that. It happens all the time. The next new competitor comes around behind you. It happened at Facebook when Twitter came around because they think, oh, man, is that really, instead of just having your friends connected, maybe that broadcast, you can follow anyone. So it happens all the time to tech companies. You know, it's interesting. I remember this interview that Bill Gates gave. I remember him being very annoyed at the success of the iPod yeah. and the fact that they <laughs> didn't won't have... let his kids use them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah something yeah. like that. And I remember him being interviewed and he, and he pulled out his cell phone. He's like, why would I need an iPod? I've got a cell phone yeah. I can store. Yeah. You know what was so brilliant about Steve is he understood the distinction between the technology and the experience of the technology mm-hmm. from the user perspective, mm-hmm. right? And he was able to make that transition of the iPod and really bring in the iPhone and Bill didn't seem to catch that. And he always says, Bill always says, if you opened up my head, it's just software. Yeah, It's just right. software in there running. So let's touch a little bit on Internet Explorer, how mm-hmm. that pivot happened. But I don't want to get too sucked into the beast of Redmond because I do want to mm-hmm. get into AOL and all this amazing stuff. And I can't imagine we're going to get into all of it. The Internet Explorer was just eventually a better browser. Why did it become a better browser? Because Microsoft, once Bill gets Internet religion, they throw a thousand people at it. They throw billions of dollars at developing these. So Netscape, even though they have this successful IPO, they don't have a thousand engineers that they can throw at anything. You know what I mean? So they had the endless resources of Microsoft, and they also had the endless coffers of Microsoft, which is how they ended up actually killing Netscape. Because as Bill, there's a quote where he says at one point, Microsoft never has to make a dime on a web browser. Netscape did. They went public and were at one time the fastest growing in terms of revenue company ever in the history of the world because they had companies pay for licenses. There's Someone told me, I think it made it into the book, we used to call up Oracle and be like, we can see that there's a 2,000 people in your organization using the Netscape browser. Maybe you need to sign up for some licenses. And all of a sudden, you know, several million dollars would fall in their laps. And so when Bill Gates decides, okay, the internet is the thing, they had endless ability to have a loss leader be their browser. Right. And they actually forced their distributors to pay them a royalty on all computers sold Actually, no, that had to do with the Apple operator. That had to do with That's the operating system. That's a whole conversation about all of their but, business practices. Right, 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 in general. And there yeah. were multiple antitrust lawsuits right. going on during this time. The specific one involving the browser is that they would say to a computer manufacturer, do you want a Windows license? Yes, we do, because who wants a computer without Windows by mm-hmm. 1995? Okay, well, then you have to install Internet Explorer, and you also cannot put Netscape, because when Netscape's so popular... Users are clamoring for it. So with my new computer, why don't you pre-install Netscape on there for me so I can get on the web? And they said to Hewlett-Packard, if you want a Windows license, you won't do that. Remarkable, remarkable. Because, I mean, Internet Explorer, I remember using it. I haven't used it in forever. It sucked. I mean, it just sucked. It was never... But no, it was good for a time period. They were legitimate by IE4. They were legitimately better than Netscape 4. All the reviews said it at the time. And so... What, What year was that? By 98, for sure, maybe late 97. Okay. So it's only a couple years. So again, if- I don't ni- remember why I always remember it sucking. Well, it, because after they beat Netscape, 
they never have an incentive to develop the yeah, product beyond sense. right, right. So it died on the vine. So right now we're talking about the open web. Mm-hmm. Let's move into the walled garden area yeah, yeah. of CompuServe, Prodigy, and AOL. Yeah, because I think certainly for my generation, I was born in 1981. That was how many of us experienced yeah. the internet, experienced the web, and in fact, you made the point that for many people, AOL was the web. It was the internet. Again, this is hard to think of. 20 years on, but everything online, having a service, what do I do? I'm dialing in somewhere and there's these pages that I'm going to and there's this thing called email. It's all new. This little, again, it's sort of pedantic. So you're telling me that this AOL page is different than this web page? I don't understand what you're telling me. It's all something I'm doing through my computer. But yeah, so let's just use AOL as an example. Online services were just, you dialed into them, but all of their content was proprietary. You know, they would have, Sports Illustrated would cut a deal with them and you'd get Sports Illustrated content from the Sports Illustrated channel that you would click over to. Everything was importing the mental models of the existing analog world and was bringing- TV channels, oh sure, or magazines, Yeah, 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 yeah. But then the web is, as you're saying, this completely open system that's also a wild west. Well, If you're dialing into an online service, all the online services have to do is just turn on the ability for you to also go to the real web. (laughs) And eventually, by 95, users are clamoring for that. And so your AOLs, your CompuServes that had spent good part of 15 years and hundreds of millions of dollars trying to create these proprietary systems, suddenly the real money is in just letting people be on the web and they become glorified ISPs. AOL was making a fortune. So Netscape, you said, was the first. It was the big first IPO. Was the first money maker. Was AOL the second? And on a no, much larger it, scale. It, it's a weird timeline because AOL actually IPO'd in '92. But oh, they it, did. Yeah, yeah. I didn't oh, realize yeah. that. But remember, the web is only invented in '90, and they only turn on the ability for AOL users to go on the web in '95. So there's a good many year period where they're trying. What were they doing before that? Just using email. Well, but and all the proprietary stuff. Oh, I got you. Where you'd go on the AOL chat rooms and the bulletin boards and the car and driver section and things like that. And so by like 93, 94, it exists as a industry, but there's maybe, maybe 3 million people in North America using these online services. It's not until they turn into ISPs and allow people on the web that all of a sudden they explode into, you know, 30, 40 million users. So how was that? They were internet service providers. You mean that they were delivering modems to users and things like no, that? No, but they were encouraging people to buy modems to add. To well, their you computer. had a great. I mean, that brings up something else in yeah. the book, which I remember, and I love this about the the CDs. Yeah. And initially, so it was Jane Brandt. Jan Brandt. Jan Brandt. That was their marketing yeah. sort of guru. And what I find so cool about this is that now. Everything comes to us through the internet, Mm -hmm. right? But at first, the internet had to come to us (laughs) somehow. She had to convince you somehow to put a disk in your computer. In in your computer, yeah, Yeah. to load the software on your computer. Her insight is brilliant. And like, think of how Netflix to this day has done it. The reason Netflix got dominant is for a period of about 10 years, every new flat screen TV, when everyone shifted over to flat screen TVs, when you opened up the box, there was that little red thing, here, sign up for Netflix. Because your new smart TV, you can get Netflix on it, right? So Jan Brandt had that same idea where computers were still new. I think in the book I say somewhere like around 1995, the penetration of computers in American homes had not yet passed 50%. So people are still for the first time bringing computers into their homes. 
I've just spent several thousand dollars on this machine. What do I do with it? Her brilliant insight was, well, here's this disk that I'll give you for free. And if you just put that in there, I'll show you something cool you can do with this new computer you just got. So it was brilliant. It's what made AOL into a $150 billion company. But, and it got people online. The pejorative that people used for AOL at the time was the training wheels for the internet. But that was necessary. Somebody had to be the training wheels for the internet. And again, Microsoft shows up during this period, of course, with MSN. We don't need to get into all of that. Another thing that I'm curious about, and I felt it most viscerally with Napster, just because of the level of invasion into your hard drive that this application had. But uh, I do remember, we all remember viruses, Trojan viruses, mm -hmm. things like that, mm -hmm. antivirus software. I don't recall you bringing that up anywhere in the book. It must have come across in your research. When did that become a concern? Was it ever really a concern for the retail user of these yeah, products? Yeah, it was always a concern. I remember getting viruses all the time because, you know, I was using the internet Downloading to, pornography. Downloading <laughs> pornography, but also trade pirated video games. Like, I don't think I ever paid for, uh, sorry guys, a version of Doom in my whole life. You know, right, I just always course. got it from a friend of a friend on discs and then God only knows what was on those discs. We were so. spreading all these, these viruses yeah. around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... Funny how that works, huh? Like, it's kind of like an ecology. In a weird way, I know we're always dealing with this stuff now, but, like, the fact that now you used to have to put executable physical things into your computer. Since we've gotten away from that stuff, it's actually a lot harder for viruses to spread now. <laughs> like, you have to do actionable things, and you have to trick. That's a whole nother time. Which is why you should never actually be using your master account as your regular account. Right, right. And don't use thumb drives. Keep, yeah, don't. For listeners interested, you should hear our episodes with Josh Corman and Bruce Schneier on cybersecurity. So, you know, I brought up porn. It's probably a good moment to ask you, why did that also not show up in your book? Because you did a whole uh, yeah, chapter yeah. on it on the podcast. You wanted to keep it clean for the kids? No. When I did all the research on that, I was expecting, everyone always says every new technology, porn is the delivery mechanism that allows it to go mainstream. It kind of didn't play out enough for me to be like, yes, this is a thesis that I can I agree run with, with. Because one of the things was, is again, in the dial-up era, pictures were hard. Like one Pamela Anderson picture would take five minutes Pamela to, was, to slowly- She was the hottest babe in, in the 1995. Time, 1995. Exactly. Barb so while the early adopters were all about porn, the mainstream people weren't until AOL had the chat rooms where you could go on and talk dirty to each other, right? Crazy. Cyber. Right. Cyber sex. But then also then trade picture files through that and things like that. So I don't know. It just it didn't feel like there was enough meat there to... Yeah, 100%. You know, this uh, researching this book, one of the things that I found most exciting and fun was going back and watching videos. The thing that comes to mind right now is a documentary from like 48 Hours or some ABC or NBC and it was about internet addiction. Yeah, yeah. Another fascinating thing to me, we're talking about the business, of course, the technology, Wall Street, but there's also the culture grappling mm -hmm. with what this is. And there was this woman, this just sort of like Midwestern woman, they're showing her on this documentary. She's like, when I come home, I just can't stop. And it's like, yeah, I, yeah. And I just, she just grabs the mouse and she's like and by the dialing way, up on By the way, that's still in an era where a computer is a thing that you have to sit down at a table at, turn on, dial in, you know, all these, as opposed to just pulling it out of your pocket. Oh, what's Scroll, right. scroll, scroll. You know, so yeah, it's orders of magnitude different. Well, to your point, that made me think because they presented it. The host, everyone seemed very concerned mm -hmm. about this yeah. woman's, you know, well-being. 
And I just thought, if you're concerned about yeah. that, yeah. there's not a single person that's okay today. You know, I've, I've talked to a lot of the early bloggers. Some of that made it into the book. They were all treated as crazy. You're sharing intimate personal details about your life with strangers. Why would you ever do that? They, Article after article, profile after profile on TV shows. These early bloggers were treated like they're maybe a little mentally ill. Now, Which meanwhile, they probably were. <laughs> but no, I guess we all are now, right? right? No, no, no. So <laughs> that's what I mean. I mean, they were mentally ill by the standards of the time. Yeah, yeah. Or we are all now mentally ill. Yeah. So, well, do you ever think about that? Your recent father. Yeah. Three years old. Your kid. Four and two. Four and two. Yeah. Two. That's right. Congratulations. Well, you ever think about? the world that these kids are going to grow up in and the types of interfaces, the way they're going to interact with technology. We, sure all, do. Do. we all do all the time. Because we're okay. We're okay. I mean, in some ways, we're not so okay, actually, today. There are things that we've lost, right? Yeah. You gain things, but you lose things. Can I tell you something? Because I've experienced it doing this book. This book has roughly been a five-year project. When I started doing it, people are like, oh, yeah, I'd like to know how this stuff happened. Today, when I tell people, they're like, oh, are you going to explain how the internet ruined our lives? And that's happened in the five-year period of me doing. That's how the worm has turned, how people's feelings about their relationship with the Internet has happened. And it started two, two and a half years ago. I remember the first time I asked someone on the Internet History Podcast, you guys do know that people are starting to hate what you're doing, right? I think it was M.G. Siegler was on. And he's like, yeah, Silicon Valley is aware that its reputation is starting to turn. Where do you think that's come from? Because I do agree about Silicon Valley. Yeah. Are you also lumping in the when you say the internet you just simply mean connected I'm, technology? I'm saying people feeling like they're addicted people feeling overwhelmed mm -hmm. people feeling bad you go on Facebook or Instagram and you see all these amazing lives that other people are having and you feel bad about yourself I think it's like the sense of losing control and this low-level depression that either constantly being nagged by the internet and these devices and things like that, or just bullying, or run the gamut of all the things that people talk about. That's interesting because I feel you on that. Mm -hmm. And I wonder, is that because of the particular business model that the internet has grown up on, the ad model, yes. and the fine-tuning of behavioral psychology? Yes. Well, Tristan Harris, the famous guy that- Facebook. Right, it wants to design ethical design. Mm -hmm. You know, his point is that this motion- is the same motion as this on a slot machine. It's a dopamine hit. What's new? What's new? What's new? I'm still unhappy. Maybe I'll be happy in a second. Maybe I'll be happy. Maybe I'll win. Maybe I'll hit the jackpot. That's not a healthy... But what are all of these algorithms designed to do? You watch one YouTube video, watch another one. Okay, you watch that one, watch another one. Watch another one, watch another one, watch another one. Smarter people than I are talking tons about this these days, but the whole model of more is better... Well, Apple, it's kind of broken. Apple recently introduced a software update about screen yeah. time control, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. I feel like it's starting to happen where certainly Apple seems in particular to be branding itself as the secure platform, as the platform giving that you gives control more control over your life. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I mean, I certainly for me and I imagine for you, it's probably easier to exercise a level of control than maybe someone that grew up with this stuff, grew up with that level of dopamine hitting you and having yeah. that level of... Pavlovian reaction to right, the scroll right. feature on your right, phone. Right. Yeah, I think so. I mean, if you're going to ask, they're not old enough yet to need like controlling their screen time, but we haven't instituted any in the same way that, you know, we're a household that we let them watch TV, not all day long, obviously, but, 
you know, I grew up watching TV all day long and I turned out all right. So on the one hand, I'm not super worried about it yet. Talk to me when they're eight or eight or 16 or something. I think also part of the problem is one, and I don't know if I've ever brought this up in the context of technology, but there's a writer, Andrew Solomon, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he's written this book, Far From the Tree. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you've read it or if you're no, familiar uh-uh. with it, but it's basically about all these aberrant, and by the term aberrant, I don't mean it judgmentally, I mean it in terms of variant from one's own genetics. Mm-hmm. Your child is deaf, your child is gay, mm-hmm. your child is transgender, or handicapped, etc. Where the difference between the parent and the child is so great that it creates emotional distress hmm. in the family, in the dynamic. Interesting. Yeah. And I wonder to what extent that that is part of what the issue is with technology as well, which is that it progresses exponentially. So does the experience of being a human being between the child right. and the parent. Right. It comes back to this idea of generations where... 20, 30 years ago, the generational difference was the baby boomers listened to rock and roll and their parents listened to jazz or whatever, right? It was matters of taste. But now a 10-year difference in age can mean I still can't comprehend Snapchat. (laughs) Comprehend is is a little I've never used Snapchat. Right, because it's confusing. Isn't it passe now? No one uses Snapchat anymore. The kids still do. But but my point is, is like that is a generational experiential difference where it's not for me. It's a different usage and design paradigm that I have aged out of. And so, yes, like a 10, a five-year age difference now can mean you grok different things. I love all these interesting areas that we're getting into. I want to bring us back to the thread of this book. I told you I would ramble. No, that's fine. I'm trying to control your rambling to an extent because I enjoy it. Let's talk about the first search engines, and maybe we can reframe this instead of trying to go down this timeline. Because at first, the search engine, AltaVista was the first search engine that worked for me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Had that reputation, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, of course, when Google came along, then, like we said, that was the first experience. This is really a search engine. So really, up until Google, they weren't really search engines, were they? They were web portals. Well, okay, they started out, they were more search engine, Boolean search, than what Google became. But they were essentially glorified database searches, Mm -hmm. right? The problem is that they could find you anything. Like, any database search will find you the bit of data that you're looking for, it's just surfacing it amongst the you know 100,000 right. other returns. That's what they weren't good at. Your AltaVistas, your Lycoses, whatever. If you say, you know, give me the best hotel in Marietta, Georgia, or whatever, they can return lots of things for Marietta, for Georgia, for hotels, or whatever, but they might not be able to put all the pieces of that puzzle and make that be the first search result. That's what Google got differently, is that it's relevancy that's the issue. But even more, they were even dumber than that Mm -hmm. because you have this one great example in the book. Maybe you can... Because I used to do tricks like this to try to rank highly. The one trick, you would make the page seem white and then the text on the white, the text would be white. So then you would spam a web page with the keyword you wanted to rank for. So if I wanted to rank for widget, I'd spam in white on white a thousand times, widget, 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 widget. The search engine would see that. I'd rank highly, but you, the user, wouldn't know because wouldn't it's know white because on they white. couldn't yeah. see it. That's really interesting. Yeah. Well, then that's a perfect example. Let's skip over to Google, and then I do want to come back to e-commerce because that's an interesting mm. thing, but maybe we can break it up that way. So there was these early search engines. Yahoo came along as well. and they. Really... So what you, your question about the portals was search was a loss leader. They're not making any money 
by you coming and searching for hotels in Marietta, Georgia. So they want you to stick around because they make money by showing you these banner ads. So they start to offer you free email, free calendars, here's your sports scores, here's the weather, all these things. They turn into portals because they turn into what has been reinvented several times over the course of the internet era, which is this is your first and last stop of your day. Come here to check your email. When you wake up in the morning, here's your calendar. Here's what's going to happen when you sign off. You know, they want you to come back. And so they got bloated and they forgot what their original use was, which was navigating the Internet. Now, that goes back again to a point that uh, we made previously. I made it or you made it, which is that you import a new technology imports the cultural practices and the mental models and norms of the users that are accustomed to a different generation of technology. Mm -hmm. It takes some time yeah. to move past that. We forget about these banner ads. I mean, there actually yeah. still are some. I don't know right, why right, the right, hell anyone right, runs right, them. Right. But indeed, and Google eventually, when they were working to find out their business model, pulled from Overture. I think the word you're looking for is ripped off. Ripped off. Go ahead. Yeah. In fact, I actually thought that it was called Overture and GoTo, right? It was, the it same. was originally called GoTo, and then they changed the name to Overture for... I'm making I thought that Google bought Overture. I didn't realize no, that they um, just Yahoo ripped did. them off. Yahoo did. When That's Yahoo was trying to remain relevant and fend off Google that came in from below, they bought Overture and tried to replicate everything. That so let's go to a little bit to Google now because I feel like a lot of people don't know this. They don't know the magic. I, mean, yeah. I think yeah. the most people may know is that Google did something with deep linking. Yeah. You know, They don't know the, how it works. The, what was its the, big innovation there? The real short answer it's an analogy, but also this is direct. Larry and Sergey's parents were both academics. In scientific papers, it's all about citations to other papers. And there's a quote, Larry or Sergey, one of them says that it turns out that you'll know who a Nobel Prize winner is because their paper will be cited the most. So they had this insight that what is the web? What are links? They're citations of authority. So if like the New York Times website is probably a pretty authoritative website, so you should trust links from that more than Brian's rando homepage or whatever. And all they did was they did the math to spread that out throughout the whole web and figure if an authoritative page links to you for Marietta, Georgia, Hotels Marietta, Georgia, that's more likely to be relevant. They determined if it was authoritative based on the number of links it was dishing out? It wasn't just the number. There's all sorts of math involved with eigenvectors and things that I don't understand. They assigned value, it, this right. different value. To different, what, not every link was equal. That's what the vaunted algorithm is, is they just did the math that said they started with the Stanford homepage. They give it a quality score of 10 you know, versus a, my homepage gets a quality score of two in terms of authority. And then they just send the spiders out and the math becomes recursive. The more links they feed it, the better the algorithm gets in terms of saying, okay, we believe this site is more authoritative than that site. And then once you spread that out throughout the entire web, it works. Which is the genius of why they did the yeah. deal with Yahoo and Yahoo didn't realize right, right, the right, value right. that they were getting the out of it. Training their algorithm, yeah. And of course, also, it was so important for them to keep it a secret into their investors. At the time that Google launched in 97 or 98, I think I started using it in 98. It's fuzzy, and Google itself has a hard time saying when its actual birthday is or whatever, because it was a research project that started in 96. I think the actual, it went live on the web in like 96 or 97. They Domain wasn't registered till late 97. They didn't incorporate the company till 98. But so even as late as 98, from 98 to as late as 2001 to 2002, they become the most popular search engine in the world, but they're not making any money. 
because mm. they don't have a business model. When did Kleiner Perkins and Sequoia invest in them? That would be 99, right before the bubble burst. How did they get funded initially? How did Google get off the ground? What's uh, the story with Larry and, and, and Sergey? Andy Bechtelsheim wrote him a check. <laughs> they knew him from Stanford? One of their advisors, because they're PhD students, so one of their faculty advisors introduces them to Andy, and because Andy had been a founder of Sun, one of the founders of Sun, and all they did was they literally took a laptop and showed that, hey, look, do a search. And he saw it worked. He walked out and wrote a check for $100,000. This is another interesting aspect as well. You touched on it a bit in the book, but I think it's just another area where you could write a whole other book on this which is the major VCs in the mm -hmm, Valley mm -hmm. and the role that they played. What's also interesting with Google, when you compare it to, let's say, companies like Tesla, you and I were talking mm -hmm. about Tesla before this, when you look at, and it's not just Tesla, there are a lot of companies or cryptocurrencies or whatever that have raised billions of dollars. Yeah. Google raised $25 million. Yeah. That was all they raised before their yeah. IPO. How much did Jeff Bezos raise before his IPO? It was less. And it was he less, never, because he never took VC money. He did all friends and family rounds. He just wanted to be rich from the beginning, yeah. didn't he? That's the other thing I learned about in reading your book. I didn't realize that, like, it seems like Jeff Bezos was motivated more by wanting to be the richest man on earth than kind of anyone else in the book. Him and Bill Gates? That's interesting. I don't know. There's several times in the book where I have to poke holes in what's been the accepted entrepreneurial story where, you know, he's said many times, oh, we drove across the country. I'm writing the business plan on my laptop, but we don't know where we're going or whatever. It's clear because I spoke to employee number one at Amazon. It's clear that the vision from day one is we can take over all of retail. What an ambitious guy. Yeah. <laughs> so like, oh my God. and we're seeing this play out where you're going to have one app for Transportation, transportation as a service. You're going to have one app for food. Well, before there were even apps, Bezos' idea is there's going to be one place, if you want a good, that you have to go to. And it's me. He reminds me of, in a different quantum universe, the life that Walter White would have lived. Mm. You know, because you don't see how he looks now. Yeah. He's like this big jack yeah, dude yeah, walking yeah. around. Yeah, yeah. Just like when Walter White shaved his head and he became like... What was his Heisenberg? Heisenberg was yeah. his name. For listeners who don't know, Walter White is Breaking uh, from Bad. Breaking Bad, yeah. the chemistry teacher. But early on, he was this kind of geeky, nerdy guy. Yeah. And when, remember that scene in Breaking Bad? I can tell you have a great memory from the conversation we had before we started. He said, I think it was to Jesse. He's like, Jesse, I was never in the drug business. I was in the empire building business. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a feeling like that with Jeff that it's. But see, it's, here's why I think it's different. Like, I feel like Bill Gates wanted to have every computer in the world running Microsoft software. I feel like, yes, obviously this is a big dream that every good I will sell to you, right? <laughs> That's a big dream. But I think that it was a hypothesis that he was testing. So I don't know why I want to walk back what you're saying. You're, I want to be the richest person in the world. I think he thought that this is a more efficient way to sell. And if it works out, what can't be sold this way? So you see what I'm saying? It's a slightly different sure, where sure. once he proves the thesis, then he's like, all right, go to a thousand, right? But I don't think that he's like, well, if I do this, I will be the richest man in the world. I think he just thought this is the more efficient way to sell goods. This is the first new efficient way to sell goods since, you know, you take goods to market 5,000 years ago or whatever. And he thought if that worked out, then you can do it for anything. He was from a very unique school. He was brilliant. Right. He was always brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is he one of those guys that he looked at the internet and said, what is the best business I can create? 
for this new paradigm? So he was working on Wall Street and they assigned him to say this new internet thing is happening. What opportunities are there for us? And he literally researched various things. And he said this multiple times that he looked at music and clothing and things like this. And he settled on books because it was, for various reasons, the easiest way to prove that selling things on the internet could work, which I go into in the book. It's not worth going into all the details of why books were the best way to prove the case. But the thing that convinced him that selling things was the way to go, like multiple people have this aha moment, including Bill Gates. But when he looked at just the numbers of people signing up, you know, again, we live in a world where if you coded up a new successful chat app tomorrow and you had 100 million users in six months, no one would be surprised. If you had a billion in two years, no one would be surprised. We're used to numbers like that. Mm -hmm. But before the web and the internet take off, what's the biggest company in the world? GM. They sell 20 million vehicles a year or whatever. You know what I mean? Everybody has a car, but the concept that a product can have an addressable user base of every human being on the planet was not a concept that people were used to thinking through as, as our addressable market is everyone, mm. you know. I think what incited me to mention the thing about money was there was just a line in the book around him being determined to fund it for as long as possible mm -hmm. and own as much of it as possible. But absolutely what you're saying makes sense. I want to mention something else because I think it's interesting. It's timely. Sears announced bankruptcy mm -hmm. yesterday, which yeah. I think is really interesting, right? I mean, Sears was the dominant, was it the dominant model that was the closest thing to e-commerce before? Sears was the first everything store. Yeah. Yeah. The concept is you're living in the Dakota Territory in the 1890s. You can't go to a store, but you need sheets and bedding and clothes and milk. And what you get a Sears catalog. Everything you need is there. You order. The post office delivers it. Incredible. It's kind of the exact same thing. So in that sense, if we perhaps underappreciate the role and impact that Sears had in making this sort of ordering from home catalog, uh, you know, what is it when you order from television? What's that called? Home shopping. Home shopping, yeah. um, Sort of the, the, yeah. the home shopping experience that maybe we don't appreciate the role that Sears played. Do we underappreciate the extent to which Amazon is e-commerce, that Amazon innovated so much Boy, of what we're we preaching to the choir here because so many of the stories in this book, there's a pioneer that pioneers some new technology or some new service or whatever. But they're not the ones that win. You know, It's not MySpace that wins. It's not Friendster that wins. It's Facebook. The fact that Amazon was not technically the first e-commerce company, but they were the first really significant ones. The fact that they are it, essentially. And also, because remember, there was Bed Bath & Beyond for bedding and things like that. There was Best Buy for electronics. So everyone assumed that that would be the thing. That's why you had the Pets.com. Everyone assumed that, well, there wouldn't just be one e-commerce player for everything. There would be the e-commerce player for your pet food, the e-commerce player for music. Because they thought, again, as the analog world where you right. need to have. Right. That's the thing that's so remarkable. But that's Bezos' insight is that once you create the system to do e-commerce efficiently, why not do everything? Why not sell tents? Why not sell cars? Why not sell? So that there's no functional reason why, aside from brand loyalty and things like that, you just need one person to sell you stuff. Well, who's the CEO of Starbucks? 
Schultz. Schultz. Yeah. You have this great quote about Howard Schultz when yeah. he speaks to Jeff Bezos in the 90s. They were both yeah. in the same area of Seattle. And he basically tried to do a deal with Jeff and said, you know, I'll put your stuff in my store. It'll give you some exposure. And he goes, he goes, you need to have, you don't have any real world exposure. I forget yeah. the words he used. And Jeff was like, I don't need it. That was something else that struck me when I was reading the book and I was thinking about that, which is that at the time, everyone thought that, right, for all sorts of things, that it's a benefit to have physical locations. Mm -hmm. In fact, in a perfect example is Barnes & Noble. Yeah. How is Barnes & Noble ever going to compete long term with Amazon mm -hmm. if they had this huge existing operation and this model of having these books shipped to these individual stores? How could they ever ultimately compete in the long term? I mean, you could make the argument that the books are a separate thing because being able to go with browse multiple things. But a better analogy would be Blockbuster always thought that it would leverage its retail footprint to its advantage. That is 100% completely wrong. Mm. I don't think bookstores will ever go away because there's still a pleasure to going and browsing. Clothing stores will never go away because there's a pleasure to touching the fabric and, oh, I like this, I like that, trying it on and things like that. There's certain things that I don't think will ever go away in terms of having a physical That's presence. interesting you think bookstores won't go away. Oh, I, I would bet a lot of money they'll never go away. Maybe they would be something more like entertainment mixed with bookstores. Like like well, Union or, Square here, Barnes & Noble has made a business out of yeah. doing events and or things like that. Or what Starbucks essentially is. Starbucks gives you your coffee hit every day, but it's also the third place. It's right. a place to go that's not your home and not sure. your your work, you know. Um, so bookstores are like that too. It's a meeting place and yeah, yeah. I'm surprised that, yes, I'm surprised that, because it doesn't make any sense to me that there's basically one player. This is not to say there are not things like Zappos, although Amazon bought Zappos and there's other e-commerce players. There's people that make billions of dollars that aren't Amazon. But for all intents and purposes, Amazon is the whole game. And that's what I give Bezos the credit for is having that vision and seeing it through, and no one else has even been able to come close. Hmm. You mentioned Pets.com again. It's another thing I wanted to ask you. What were some of the worst offenders towards the the end of the 90s, the, the peak of the bubble? You make another great point. i got to commend you on something else. On this show, our sort of specialty is finance, mm -hmm. econ, and mm -hmm. some tech. You had Sebastian Malaby on the program. Mm -hmm. Sebastian's a, a tremendous resource. And you had him on specifically to talk about his work chronicling Alan Greenspan's, Greenspan's life, yeah, which I yeah. think is such a small yeah. piece. And I think it speaks to the extent to which you research this. But you make this great point about demographics and the fact that the baby boomers were just coming online with this huge wall of money that was feeding Wall somewhere. Street had to go somewhere and where to go it went to the tech bubble yeah yeah my point being there's a tremendous amount of money and yeah. a huge amount of misallocation of capital it was things had to be cut from the book and there was the editors sometimes were suggesting i cut the dot-com stuff it was really important to me to preserve all the stuff about the dot-com bubble that i left in there because i think it's so instructive all we live in now is this one bubble after another economy like, basically, that's the only way we juice up our economy until we juice it too far and then it explodes or whatever. It was important to me for the broader social reasons to be like, well, this was the first time everyday people experienced a bubble and they experienced it with their 401k plans in their lives. You know, there's stories in there about people taking all this free money that pets.coms of the era here, you know, free shipping and like hundreds of billions of dollars of VC money that was subsidizing all of these to get people to try e-commerce for the first time. But also because to Silicon Valley, it's important because like it's this thing that like 
every time you know some new company comes around is this another bubble is this another bubble or whatever i thought it was important to go into what the bubble, what a bubble really looks like actually was <laughs> why it was the sort of unique set of circumstances and why everyone went so crazy they did go crazy and i'm going to pull two examples yeah. i don't even know that they're the best ones the blue mountain is one of the best ones so i remember using blue mountain yeah. I, and i remember when i saw this i was like I don't remember ever thinking that this was a money-making operation. Right. So Blue Mountain was bought for $740 million. And this was not $740 million today. I feel like that money comes easy today. Yeah. That was a lot of money. Yeah. I mean, it's still a lot of money, but it was a lot of money. Who purchased them for $740? That was Excite at Home. Okay. And then Pets. Pets was disgusting. So Pets.com was notorious for selling things at below cost. I'm pulling this out from your book. They spent 76% of their own money on marketing, mm -hmm. including a nearly $2 million Super Bowl ad. Yeah. And they spent $158 to acquire every new customer yeah, yeah. and were bankrupt or liquidated 260 days after their IPO. IPO yeah. And when you compare that to Napster, which I think in the first six months had 20 million new users or something, yeah. and then the first year had 40 million, and they only spent $400,000 on all of their hardware, and that's it, they had no marketing. I think that's a perfect example between, and Napster was born out of the ashes of the boom, and Pets.com came online right at the end. And the reason I wanted to highlight that for the audience, because we spent so much time talking about valuations. We've talked about Tesla. We had Howard Marks on the program mm -hmm. speaking about, you know, bubble thinking. That's a great example because a Pets.com simply wouldn't have happened when Netscape was coming into being. And, right. and if Netscape had come into being in the late 90s, I don't even know if there's a negative effect of being a really great idea. Who knows exactly? Or maybe simply those people wouldn't have been inspired to do something like that. Well, there's a couple of things here because... They're not wrong. Like Blue Mountain was bought because it was at one point one of the top 10 most trafficked sites in the world. So there's a time in the bubble where it's like, we just need traffic, we need eyeballs, we need to be, because everyone's in a land grab. And there was a portal that bought them. It was yeah, Excite. Excite at home, yeah. Well, they're not wrong because they're all thinking, well, one day we'll be the company that'll have a billion users. We now have companies that have billion users routinely. It's just that they were too early. Right. 1997, 1998 was not the time that you could scrounge together a billion users. They were right at the wrong time. They had no choice of what you're saying. They yeah. had to follow that strategy one way or the other. When you've got Pets.com, famously, they're selling dog food and to deliver it, it costs them more than they could ever hope to make on delivering you that dog food. Or there was the famous furniture company that like, you know, we could never figure out how to get a couch to someone's house. All those problems have been solved by people. It took time, it took, you know, building out the infrastructure that again, Amazon, we have to credit them for taking the time and investing the money to create the infrastructure to make that sort of stuff possible. It's just that they were right at the wrong time. So if you're an investor in pets.com, there are good businesses now, catering to our furry friends, and I think it's an $80 billion market, but it just wasn't the right time and these weren't the right people to deliver on it. I guess one is what did you learn during this process from the history itself that you didn't know that sort of stuck with you the most? And also, what did the process teach you of engaging with this material? It's weird because, again, 20-year internet industry veteran, so... I thought I knew certain stories, 
And then it would always surprise me what the real story was. Like the chapter about eBay is a little bit about creating the perfect marketplace and things like that. But it's really about eBay was teaching us how to trust strangers for mm. the first time online, right? Mm -hmm. And think of what eBay has pioneered. Like, you know, would we have an Uber mm. or, you know, Airbnb, like this five-star rating system that allows interacting with strangers to function because you have a reputation system? eBay pioneered that with their five-star to help people trust complete strangers and do business with them. It would surprise me when I would do the chapter on Napster. Okay, I got to tell a Napster story now. I remember Napster. I used Napster. It was all about pirating music. No, it wasn't. The story about Napster in the end is they were the pioneers of the instant gratification, unlimited selection media environment that we live in. If I tell you about a great new TV show, you expect that you should be able to pull it up on your phone and start watching it in about 10 seconds. That's what Napster really was. Mm -hmm. All of the music in the world, oh, it helped that it was also free, but it turns out that people, all they really want is everything and they want it right now. And if you give it to them, they'll pay for it. People pay for Spotify. They're approaching 100 million subscribers, you know? So even though Napster was about piracy and was about free music, it was really, in the end, about people just want the unlimited selection, instant gratification. Also, that's another great story from the standpoint of technologies converging. The storage space, obviously, of the hard drives becoming available for mm -hmm. people to actually do that, having all that yeah, spare storage. Yeah. But, but the innovation and loss of compression with the MP3 right, yeah. and the ability to actually be able to share this type of music over the network. There were a ton in the dot-com era of music startups that not just to sell CDs as e-commerce, but to do things that now Spotify does, that now Napster tried to do, that iTunes Store did, but they were just too early and the, the technology wasn't there because you were in dial-up. I want to ask you one more question because we've run over, and that is a question that I was inspired to ask from an interview that I did with John Borthwick. Interestingly, Bruce Schneier says one of the implications of what he said is that you know the internet was never built with security in mind. That's mm -hmm. a yeah. big problem. Yeah. But John talked about how payments were not enabled in the browser yeah. early on and that we would have had a very different internet if that were the case. I don't mean to ask you what was done wrong. Mm -hmm. Things were done the way they were done. I don't know if you went back in time without any knowledge, if they would be done any differently. But knowing what you know now, if something could have been done differently in the early days of the web to make the world we're living in better today, what do you think that would have been? Would it have been payments enabled in the browser or would it have been something 100%, else? 100% because we're just coming out of that mistake now. Mm. But that goes back to the fact that the internet was a government program. It was supposed to be for academics and researchers. And so legally, you could not conduct business on the internet until I think it was 1993. Jeff Bezos couldn't have done Amazon in 1993 because legally you couldn't have commerce on the internet. So the problem is, is that when the training wheels for the internet happened, everyone had this expectation that, well, I don't have to pay for anything. If this is all this content that's just going to be delivered to me. Now, you can make economic arguments that like, you know, if zero marginal costs and things like that in the digital realm. But the point is, is that we have spent 20 years trying to train people that stuff is worth paying for, even if it's digital. Things like Netflix, things like Spotify, things like these subscriptions to anything. The, the fact that everybody is now moving to the X as a service subscription model is we would have been better off if we had started. We had scrapped the last 20 years. Yeah, if we had started by the expectation that you have to pay for stuff. And let me ask you one more thing since in closing. What do you miss? Because I told you 
for me, I was an adolescent. Yeah, so know? was I. Yeah, you yeah. were. Yeah. So, I mean, I was going through puberty, mm-hmm. dating, experiencing all sorts of new things. All of this was happening in the 90s. Yeah. And music and, you know, so much of that intersected with the coming of age of the internet. And so when I listened to your podcast and listened to that dial-up every time, I, I wanted to listen to it. Yeah, you know, yeah. when I went online and I listened to the sounds from AOL or saw some of these really shitty websites and their, you know, images, mm. it brought back a lot of nostalgia. Yeah. It was nostalgic. What do you miss the most from that period that when you interact with it, or is it just one giant collage? Is it everything? No, but this is, you miss your youth, but it is that it wasn't for everybody. That when I was 12 and I was going on Prodigy or BBSs or things like that and looking for pirated video games and porn and things like that, like I knew my mom wasn't into this stuff. She didn't know what the hell it was. Didn't know what the hell was going on. <laughs> it's sort of like, I'll use a music analogy again, which is people always used to say this in the, in the 80s about REM, is everyone loved REM when they were just some regional band from Georgia or whatever. But then when REM became the biggest rock band in the world, all those original fans were sort of like bent out of shape about it because now I've been loving them since 1984. Like, how dare you? So there's a little bit of that where it's just like, because the internet is so ubiquitous now, it doesn't feel special to me anymore. Mm. There are things about it. There are different technologies that I'm still excited about and I still find magical and special, but it doesn't feel like my own private little secret anymore. That's interesting. That resonates. I also wonder how much of it has to do with the age that we were at. Oh, sure. I think about that all the time. You do. This book has been so much about me thinking about my own mortality and aging and like the kids today. And like, you know, I want people that lived it to think back and like, okay, these were the steps and how it happened. But I also like if you live long enough, the things that you experience become history. So all of these things about the dot com companies, it is history if you're 26. So here you go. Learn the lessons of them. You don't have to think it's great or whatever, but, you know, be aware of how we got here. But I think also this is what I was trying to say with the age thing. There's something about having this technology that's so new. It's so new that an older generation is Mm -hmm. out of step, can't really understand it. And like you said, it's your own private little world. It's an enclave where... The adults, yeah. they can't get to it. They don't know how to swim to get to that cove. Bringing it back to my kids, like, will they have things like that? Like, because... They'll have AR images coming into the room. Right, but if AR and VR really did become mainstream, who do you think would be most excited about it? Papa would. <laughs> like, <laughs> they might end up using it more than me. But so, like, yeah, I don't know. Well, then it's mainstream already. It isn't still right. forming. Exactly. Right, right, right. There's something about it forming, that primordial soup. Yeah, yeah. So, Brian, I thank you so much for coming on. It was great having you on, but it was actually, this is one of those rare moments that I'd say I actually enjoyed preparing for your interview more than I did even interviewing you. It was such an important experience for me to go back in time and do this. And I think everyone would benefit from reading your book and everyone would benefit from spending some time in general, as they get older, going back in time and revisiting a th- and period if, that they if thought If we've they turned knew. off any of you kids, 26-year-olds out there, we do go all the way up to the modern era with the iPhone and Facebook. All those stories are in there, too. So it's not just about obscure dot-coms you've never heard of either. No, no, it, it does go through all those things. And I think, you know, I, I think the, the reason that we focused on it was obvious. because we're old. <laughs> <laughs> I don't say that. Brian, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Thanks. All right. And that was my episode with Brian McCullough. I want to thank Brian for being on my program. 
Today's episode of Hidden Forces was recorded at Edge Studio in New York City. For more information about this week's episode, or if you want easy access to related programming, visit our website at hiddenforces.io and subscribe to our free email list. If you're a regular listener to the show, take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts. Each review helps more people find the show and join our amazing community. Today's episode was produced by me and edited by Stilianos Nicolau. For more episodes, you can check out our website at hiddenforces.io. Join the conversation at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hiddenforcespod or send me an email at dk at hiddenforces.io. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.